You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our scripture reading this afternoon is from four places in the New Testament, three in the Gospel of Luke and one in the Gospel of Matthew. We turn first of all to Luke 1, the verses 5 to 17, then Luke 1, the verses 26 to 33. Luke 2, the verses 8 to 20, and then Matthew 1, 18 to 21. And hopefully in due time you will see the reason in the confusion. We turn then first of all to Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5 to verse 17. Where the word of our God reads as follows, In the time of King Herod, or King of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Then we turn to verse 26 to 33. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And then we turn to Luke 2, the verses 8 to 20. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord 
appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. And then we go back to Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 21. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Our text this afternoon comes from, first of all, Luke 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, meaning, Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Then we go on to verse 30. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. Then we turn to Luke 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news, a great joy that will be for all people. And then finally, our last text is from Matthew 1, verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. I love a congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, at this time of year when we prepare to celebrate the birth and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world, there are many different themes that fill the air. There is, for example, the well-known theme of peace on earth or glory to God in the highest. There is the theme of joy to the world or nothing is impossible with God or the people living in darkness have seen a great light or the theme of a baby in a manger. 
You know, the list of possible themes that you can think of and that you can reflect on goes on and on. But nevertheless, as it does so, there is one theme that I dare say is often overlooked. If it is not pointed out to you, you might even miss it. And it has to do with fear. Four times the angel, and many think it was Gabriel every time, comes to the people in the Christian narrative and he says to them, do not be afraid. Literally, fear not. And so what does that tell you about Advent and Christmas? Surely it is to remind you that this is a time of year that is also noted or should be noted for the casting out of fear. It's also about getting rid of that negative emotion. After all, fear is not unknown to us, is it? As we go through this life, we experience many fears, fear of flying, fear of failure, fear of the future, or perhaps fear of growing old. There are health fears and people fears and money fears and job fears. Indeed, some people's lives are so full of fear that it ruins their appetites, undermines their happiness, disturbs their sleep and ruins the quality of their lives. Fear has a way of messing up a lot of things. And in light of that, beloved, it's perhaps good for us to spend some time this afternoon looking at these various scripture passages that we find at the beginning of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. I preach to you on the theme, Christmas and the Death of Fear. Or if you want, the four fears of Advent. Well, beloved, the heavenly offensive against earthly fear begins, you can see, with the priest Zechariah. The story is told to us in Luke 1. There we are introduced to an old priest called Zechariah, or sometimes translated Zacharias, who has an equally old wife, it would appear, called Elizabeth. And together they represent the senior citizens of Advent. Only senior in this case does not mean useless, for look, Zechariah is still working, working as a priest. In his old age, he is even, we can see, singled out for a singular kind of honor. He is chosen one day to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Had he done this before? Was this the first time? We don't know. What we do know, however, is that many, many priests waited and prayed for a lifetime to receive this kind of opportunity, but never received it. There were just too many priests waiting in line. Too many names in the hat. So the impression is given to us in Luke 1, isn't it, that this is Zechariah's first and perhaps only time? And so you need to understand at this particular moment, Zechariah is greatly honored. He's going to experience the thrill of a lifetime. There is no higher priestly honor than the work that he is about to do. But then, beloved, along comes the angel Gabriel, and the angel Gabriel ruins it all. At least at first sight, he surely does. 
For there is Zechariah in the temple, in the holy place, and he's just about, notice, at the pinnacle of the ceremony, namely the burning of the incense, and suddenly there on the right side of the altar stands this angel. And Zechariah stops in his tracks, and he's gripped with fear. Incense offering takes an instant backseat to utterly unexpected angelic appearance. However, it would appear that Gabriel is a considerate angel. I don't know if there are any other kind, but he is. For no sooner does he see Zachariah's apprehension and reaction, and he goes out of his way to make him, as it were, comfortable. Don't. Be afraid, Zechariah, he says. You wonder if it helped. Did it really slow down his racing heart or stop the knocking of his knees? Did it really remove his fears? That's doubtful. But all in all, it does force us to ask why. Why is Zechariah so fearful? And no doubt some of you may be thinking, well, that's kind of a silly ministerial type of question. How would you react if you saw an angel one day? How would you feel if suddenly an angel was knocking on your door? And that's true enough. I think we all probably to some measure would be scared out of our wits. But you know, it doesn't give the full answer. For note that that Luke, and that's interesting in all of these accounts, there is really no description of the angel, is there? Was he standing there in white? We think he was, but we don't really know, do we? Was he all aglow somehow? What kind of an appearance was it that so unnerved Zechariah? We don't really know, do we? We don't really have the answer. And yet at the same time, beloved, we can say that it's more than just the fear of looking at something really awesome and unexpected. Because look a little deeper. Where is Zechariah? He's in the temple. He's in the holy place. There's only one place holier than that, and that's next door in the Holy of Holies. And what's he doing? He's about to to make an offering. And what qualifies him to do so? Well, he's a priest. He's a priest after the division of Abijah, we are told. But is that all? That's not all, is it? Zechariah may be a priest, but he's a sinful priest. Zechariah may be about to bring a sacrifice, but it is not a perfect sacrifice. Because really, what do we have here? We have an imperfect priest bringing an imperfect sacrifice in God's most holy place. And then along comes suddenly this angel, this Gabriel, and you need to understand that with him, comes that realm of heavenly perfection. You see, if the sight of the angel doesn't scare Zechariah, the fact of what he is doing must surely scare him stiff. 
Here a sinful priest is working. But suddenly imperfection meets perfection, earth meets heaven, priest meets angel, and that can only result in one thing, and that is this huge feeling of inadequacy. What right do I have to offer this sacrifice? My sins disqualify me. My transgressions rule me out. Gabriel should be doing this. Not me. Only Gabriel is not allowed to do it. Zechariah must do it and he can do it. The imperfect priest must carry out the imperfect sacrifice. And why? To prepare the way. For the coming of the perfect priest who will bring the one final, supreme, perfect sacrifice. In spite of his shortcomings, God uses Zechariah as an instrument in his hand. He uses him to bring the forerunner of his son into the world. Yes, and as this son takes care of Zachariah's inadequacies, so he takes care of all the inadequacies of all of God's people. For it's not just Zachariah, beloved. Who of us is able? Who of us is worthy? Who of us is perfect? Who of us deserves what we receive at this time of year and every day of the year? But yet, thankfully, we have a Savior. A Savior who makes us able, worthy, and ultimately perfect. And without spot. We have a Savior who equips us as priests, saves us as sinners, adopts us as brothers and sisters into his family. In and through him, and him alone, all of our inadequacies disappear. But then, beloved, if there is Zechariah, there is also Mary. We turn to Luke 1, 26 and following, and there we are introduced for the first time to a virgin by the name of Mary. We note she is a pledged woman. She's going to marry Joseph, a descendant of great old King David. We move then from old folks to young folks, from priests to royalty. Only it is a long, forgotten powerless, penniless royalty. And now this Mary receives a home visit, an angelic home visit. Once again, it is the angel Gabriel who comes knocking on the door, and he comes even rather politely, greetings you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. But then note her reaction is the same as as that of Zechariah. She too is taken aback and she's scared. And to her as well, he has to say, do not be afraid, Mary. Why does she too need to be reassured? Again, you might say the intersection of heaven and earth creates tension in the air. Once more, the unholy clashes with the holy, the imperfect with the perfect, the sinful with 
the sinless darkness with light. But there's more. For if Zechariah has a case of inadequacy, Mary has a case of insignificance. Who is Mary? You know, contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches or has made of her, she is at bottom a nobody. She's a woman and thus dependent. She's young and thus without rights. She is a virgin and thus powerless. She is betrothed and thus in transition. She may or may not have been a descendant of King David. The scholars are still arguing about that. But even if she is or if she isn't, it doesn't make much difference in those days. So who's Mary? She's of no account. No name, no status, no money, no power, no connections. Humanly speaking and in the eyes of the world, she is a zero. And she knows this. And she knows this even more after she hears what Gabriel, the angel, has to say to her. For does that suddenly inflate her pride and bolster her ego? No, there is every indication that it frightens her even more. How can this be? How's it going to happen? She reacts to Gabriel with fear. And once she hears the message that he brings, that fear doesn't go away. It increases. And it increases in the face of her insignificance. You know, later on, she's going to be singing. And she's going to be singing about the humble estate of God's servant. And about God lifting up the humble, the nobodies, the no accounts. What right do the humble have to receive heavenly messengers? Let alone be called highly favored. But yet, beloved, as her meeting with Gabriel continues, and as she hears more, and as it slowly begins to sink in, her fear lifts. And she takes to heart Gabriel's words, do not be afraid. She submits, finally, and she says, I, I am the Lord's servant. I'm not sure, in other words, what's all involved with this. I don't understand all the ins and outs, but I don't have to. May it be to me as you have said. Mary promises to listen and obey, to hear and to heed, to serve and sacrifice. Yes, and in the process, notice the Lord in turn takes care of her insignificance. It starts already when Elizabeth opens the door and exclaims, But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And it continues when the child is born, and when the shepherds come, and when the wise men worship. And it goes on and on. Our our God, you see, has this wonderful way of turning nobodies into somebodies. 
He's in the bringing down and the lifting up of business. Mary sings, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. Our Lord Jesus Christ will later say to his disciples, who are nothing more than a bunch of fishermen, that they're going to sit on thrones, thrones of judgment. The Apostle Paul comments that our God takes the lowly, the despised things of the world, the nothing things, and he makes them into something. Our God takes care of Mary's insignificance. And he will also take care of ours. And in the meantime, our calling is simple. Just keep on serving. Keep on listening. Keep on obeying and doing God's will. And be assured, the great promotion is coming. So, beloved Zechariah, as well as Mary, receive heavenly assurance. But again, it doesn't stop with them, for we turn next to Luke 2. No sooner has Luke told us about the greatest birth in the history of the world, and notice he kind of switches. He shifts the focus from Bethlehem to Ephrathah, from town to field, from a babe in a manger to a bunch of shepherds. And that's kind of a surprise, isn't it? Would any of you have predicted that? If asked, we might have predicted a shift, let's say, from town to city, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, from babe in the manger to King Herod on the throne, from quiet birth to public noisy announcements, only it doesn't happen that way. And that's not all. For in addition from going to manger to field, we also go from shepherds, notice, to angels again. Only this time it's not one angel, but a whole company of angels. Angels, angels everywhere. And specifically, these angels are singing. They're singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to man on whom his favor rests. Note again. That while the angels are singing, the shepherds are shivering, shivering in fear. And once more, the angel, and perhaps it was Gabriel, says, do not be afraid. A third time. Why are they too afraid? And no doubt we say again it has everything to do with earth being invaded by heaven. But, you know, it also has to do with something else. It has to do with inferiority. You and I need to realize that not many fathers in Israel would encourage their sons to become shepherds. Ancient documents tell us that shepherds were on the fringe of society. They belonged in the same category as the publicans and the prostitutes. And while they were supposed to take care of the sheep, they often stole the sheep and sold them or sold their wool illegally or neglected them. You know, it may be kind of quaint and romantic to be a shepherd today, but in the days of the New Testament, it wasn't that at all. And on the one hand, that makes the appearance of this angelic choir all the more surprising. 
You know, here we have what, what probably was the greatest choral performance in history. And who hears it? Who hears it? Do they hear it in Bethlehem? Not as far as we know. Do they hear it in Jerusalem? No. The only people who hear it are shepherds. And that's an amazing thing. But you know, it's also an embarrassing thing. You can be sure that as the shepherds were taking all of this in, as they were looking and as they were listening, they were saying to themselves, wrong audience. Wrong address. What are you doing singing like this and about this to the likes of us? Only it is not a case of wrong address, wrong audience. Because once again, our God knows exactly what he is doing. He is telling his servants to sing to these measly shepherds. And he's using these measly shepherds as witnesses to the birth of his great son. He's turning shepherds, the most unlikely of people, into great news broadcasters. Well, look at what they do afterwards. It says the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. You can't and you couldn't shut them up. Unlikely shepherds become super ambassadors. God strips them of their inferiority. He raises them up, way up with the princes of his people. And isn't that a most wonderful thing? And isn't that something that our God is still doing today? Perhaps you think, maybe you think deep down, uh, I don't really count. I don't really matter. Nobody cares about me at bottom. I don't have any gifts. I don't have any talents. I don't have any special abilities. And if you think that, you're wrong. Look at the shepherds and take heart. Because if God employs and empowers the likes of these kinds of people, who says he cannot and he will not, do the same to you and use you in his wonderful service. So we have Zechariah, we have Mary, we have shepherds, all receiving a word of angelic consolation. And one more person, Joseph. We have to go back to Matthew's gospel. And this is just before our Savior is born. And we see that it's not just Mary and Zechariah and the shepherds who receive an angelic visitation. The same happens to Joseph. And again, it may have been Gabriel, it doesn't say, but he seems to be receiving these kind of chores. There's also another difference, and that is that Joseph sees and he hears him, it says, in a dream. The angel comes to him and says, Joseph, son of David. You know that's actually wrong, right? 
It should say Joseph, son of Jacob. Look at verse 15. It tells you that Joseph's immediate father is Jacob. And it's only his great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandfather, who's David. So already the address is a bit of a surprise. What comes next is not a surprise. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. That's the fourth time we hear it in the Advent Gospel. Once more, the appearance of an angel, even in a dream, sparks fear. Heavenly beings continue to unnerve earthly people. Yet once more, beloved, the cause of the fear runs deeper. Because this time it has to do with Mary. With Mary, what's happened to her and what in the world to do with her? You see, Joseph is a betrothed man, and he has discovered one way or another, we don't know how, that Mary is expecting, and it's not him. He's not the father. And the only conclusion that he can draw from all of that is, you know what? She's done something she shouldn't have done. And then suddenly, in the midst of all of that thinking and anguish and tumult, he gets this most astounding, angelic appearance. And what does the angel say to him? Joseph, I understand. I realize why you're bowing out, and I respect you, and I respect the way you're going to do it. No, the angel doesn't say that. The angel comes to him and says, Joseph, you've got to marry her. And thereafter, the angel tells him something that must have completely floored him. Mary is carrying a child of the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure how he understood that theologically. But he got the drift. Mary is carrying the Messiah of Israel in her womb. Imagine that. Can can you even imagine that? I can't. But but if you could, just imagine, if you could, what would be your reaction? I would say probably the reaction of most of you would be, and you, Gabriel, or whoever you are, you want me to stay with Mary, and you want me to take care of this very special child? You want me to parent him and protect him? You want me to teach him? To teach the Savior of the world? Isn't that an impossible task? Who's up to this? Who can shoulder that kind of responsibility? Who will volunteer for that sort of parental service? You see, if the sight of the angel doesn't do Joseph in, then the message that he brings must surely have done so. Joseph needed this, do not be afraid. Because he's a man who has a lot of reasons to be scared stiff. His problem is not so much a case of inadequacy or insignificance or inferiority, but it is a case of inability 
sheer, abject human inability. How in the world am I going to do this? How am I going to be a father to this kind of child? But again, as if our God does not know this. But what Joseph needs to learn and what we all need to learn is that God never gives burdens greater than we can bear. He doesn't expect the impossible from Joseph. He doesn't expect it from us either. Now, every great task is accompanied by an even greater resource. In Joseph's case, the same Holy Spirit who conceives the child will also equip those who are responsible for raising the child. The Spirit who fills John the Baptist, the Spirit who conceives in Mary, the Spirit who equips the shepherds, the Spirit who guides wise men, who leads Simeon, who fills Anna, is the same Spirit who will help and equip Joseph. He doesn't need to fear, and he doesn't need to worry. Yes, and beloved, if you think of it, the same Spirit, the same Spirit has been enabling God's children throughout the centuries. He's still at work even today. You can be sure that whatever challenge God gives you is not giving you an isolation. It's giving you together with the means and the abilities and the strength to do his will. And so, beloved, as Advent moves into Christmas, serve this great God joyfully, confidently, boldly every day. And be sure he's going to take care. He'll take care of your inadequacies, of your insignificance, of your inferiority, of your inabilities. Do not be afraid. Is after all a fitting theme for Advent, for Christmas, and for living the Christian life every single day. Fear not, beloved. Fear not. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.